Chapter 5, verses 13 through 17 of Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians by Martin Luther. Translated by Theodore Grabner. Chapter 5 The Doctrine of Good Works. Now come all kinds of admonitions and precepts. It was the custom of the apostles that after they had taught faith and instructed the conscience, they followed it up with admonitions unto good works, that the believers might manifest the duties of love toward each other. In order to avoid the appearance as if Christianity militated against good works or opposed civil government, the apostle also urges us to give ourselves unto good works, to lead an honest life, and to keep faith and love with one another. This will give the lie to the accusations of the world that we Christians are the enemies of decency and of public peace. The fact is, we Christians know better what constitutes a truly good work than all the philosophers and legislators of the world, because we link believing with doing. Verse 13. For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. In other words, you have gained liberty through Christ, i.e., you are above all laws as far as conscience is concerned. You are saved. Christ is your liberty and life. Therefore, law, sin, and death may not hurt you or drive you to despair. This is the constitution of your priceless liberty. Now take care that you do not use your wonderful liberty for an occasion of the flesh. Satan likes to turn this liberty which Christ has gotten for us into licentiousness. Already the Apostle Jude complained in his day. There are certain men crept in unawares, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Jude 4. The flesh reasons, If we are without the law, we may as well indulge ourselves. Why do good? Why give alms? Why suffer evil when there is no law to force us to do so? This attitude is common enough. People talk about Christian liberty, and then go and cater to the desires of covetousness, pleasure, pride, envy, and other vices. Nobody wants to fulfill his duties. Nobody wants to help out a brother in distress. This sort of thing makes me so impatient at times, that I wish the swine who trampled precious pearls underfoot were back once again under the tyranny of the Pope. You cannot wake up the people of Gomorrah with the gospel of peace. Even we creatures of the world do not perform our duties as zealously in the light of the gospel as we did before in the darkness of ignorance, because the surer we are of the liberty purchased for us by Christ, the more we neglect the word, prayer, well-doing, and suffering. If Satan were not continually molesting us with trials, with the persecution of our enemies, and the ingratitude of our brethren, we would become so careless and indifferent to all good works, that in time we would lose our faith in Christ, resign the ministry of the word, and look for an easier life. Many of our ministers are beginning to do that very thing. They complain about the ministry, they maintain they cannot live on their salaries, they whimper about the miserable treatment they receive at the hand of those whom they delivered from the servitude of the law by the preaching of the gospel. These ministers desert our poor and maligned Christ, 
involve themselves in the affairs of the world, seek advantages for themselves and not for Christ. With what results they shall presently find out. Since the devil lies in ambush for those in particular who hate the world, and seeks to deprive us of our liberty of the spirit, or to brutalize it into the liberty of the flesh, we plead with our brethren after the manner of Paul, that they may never use this liberty of the spirit purchased for us by Christ as an excuse for carnal living, or as Peter expresses it, 1 Peter 2.16, for a cloak of maliciousness. In order that Christians may not abuse their liberty, the apostle encumbers them with the rule of mutual love, that they should serve each other in love. Let everybody perform the duties of his station and vocation diligently, and help his neighbor to the limit of his capacity. Christians are glad to hear and obey this teaching of love. When others hear about this Christian liberty of ours, they at once infer, If I am free, I may do what I like. If salvation is not a matter of doing, why should we do anything for the poor? In this crude manner, they turn the liberty of the spirit into wantonness and licentiousness. We want them to know, however, that if they use their lives and possessions after their own pleasure, if they do not help the poor, if they cheat their fellow men in business and snatch and scrape by hook and by crook everything they can lay their hands on, we want to tell them that they are not free, no matter how much they think they are, but they are the dirty slaves of the devil, and are seven times worse than they ever were as slaves of the Pope. As for us, we are obliged to preach the gospel which offers to all men liberty from the law, sin, death, and God's wrath. We have no right to conceal or revoke this liberty proclaimed by the gospel, and so we cannot do anything with the swine who dive headlong into the filth of licentiousness. We do what we can, we diligently admonish them to love and to help their fellow men. If our admonitions bear no fruit, we leave them to God, who will in his own good time take care of these disrespecters of his goodness. In the meanwhile, we comfort ourselves with the thought that our labors are not lost upon the true believers. They appreciate the spiritual liberty and stand ready to serve others in love, and, though their number is small, the satisfaction they give us far outweighs the discouragement which we receive at the hands of the large number of those who misuse this liberty. Paul cannot possibly be misunderstood, for he says, Brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. In order that nobody might mistake the liberty of which he speaks for the liberty of the flesh, the apostle adds the explanatory note, Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Paul now explains at the hand of the Ten Commandments what it means to serve one another in love. Verse 14 For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It is customary with Paul to lay the doctrinal foundation first, and then to build on it the gold, silver, and gems of good deeds. Now there is no other foundation than Jesus Christ. Upon this foundation, the apostle erects the structure of good works, which he defines in this one sentence, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In adding such precepts of love, the apostle embarrasses the false apostles very much, as if he were saying to the Galatians, I have described to you what spiritual life is, 
Now I will also teach you what truly good works are. I am doing this in order that you may understand that the silly ceremonies of which the false apostles make so much are far inferior to the works of Christian love. This is the hallmark of all false teachers, that they not only pervert the true doctrine, but also fail in doing good. Their foundation vitiated, they can only build wood, hay, and stubble. Oddly enough, the false apostles who were such earnest champions of good works never required the work of charity, such as Christian love, and the practical charity of a helpful tongue, hand, and heart. Their only requirement was that circumcision, days, months, years, and times, should be observed. They could not think of any other good works. The Apostle exhorts all Christians to practice good works after they have embraced the pure doctrine of faith, because even though they have been justified, they still have the old flesh to refrain them from doing good. Therefore it becomes necessary that sincere preachers cultivate the doctrine of good works as diligently as the doctrine of faith, for Satan is a deadly enemy of both. Nevertheless, faith must come first, because without faith it is impossible to know what a God-pleasing deed is. Let nobody think that he knows all about this commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It sounds short and easy, but show me the man who can teach, learn, and do this commandment perfectly. None of us heed, or urge, or practice this commandment properly. Though the conscience hurts when we fail to fulfill this commandment in every respect, we are not overwhelmed by our failure to bear our neighbor sincere and brotherly love. The words, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, entail a criticism of the Galatians. You are so taken up by your superstitions and ceremonies that serve no good purpose, that you neglect the most important thing, love. St. Jerome says, We wear our bodies out with watching, fasting, and labor, and neglect charity, the queen of all good works. Look at the monks, who meticulously fast, watch, etc. To skip the least requirement of their order, would be a crime of the first magnitude. At the same time, they blithely ignored the duties of charity and hated each other to death. That is no sin, they think. The Old Testament is replete with examples that indicate how much God prizes charity. When David and his companions had no food with which to still their hunger, they ate the showbread which lay people were forbidden to eat. Christ's disciples broke the Sabbath law when they plucked the ears of corn. Christ himself broke the Sabbath, as the Jews claimed, by healing the sick on the Sabbath. These incidents indicate that love ought to be given consideration above all laws and ceremonies. Verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. We can imagine the apostle saying to the Galatians, Why do you get so worked up over ceremonies, meats, days, places, and such things? Leave off this foolishness and listen to me. The whole law is comprehended in this one sentence. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. God is not particularly interested in ceremonies, nor has he any use for them. The one thing he requires of you is that you believe in Christ whom he hath sent. If in addition to faith, which comes first as the most acceptable service unto God, you want to add laws, then you want to know that all laws are comprehended in this short commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
Paul knows how to explain the law of God. He condenses all the laws of Moses into one brief sentence. Reason takes offense at the brevity with which Paul treats the law. Therefore reason looks down upon the doctrine of faith and its truly good works. To serve one another in love, i.e., to instruct the erring, to comfort the afflicted, to raise the fallen, to help one's neighbor in every possible way, to bear with his infirmities, to endure hardships, toil, ingratitude in the church and in the world, and on the other hand, to obey government, to honor one's parents, to be patient at home with a nagging wife and an unruly family, these things are not at all regarded as good works. The fact is, they are such excellent works that the world cannot possibly estimate them at their true value. It is tersely spoken, Love thy neighbor as thyself. But what more needs to be said? You cannot find a better or nearer example than your own. If you want to know how you ought to love your neighbor, ask yourself how much you love yourself. If you were to get into trouble or danger, you would be glad to have the love and help of all men. You do not need any book of instructions to teach you how to love your neighbor. All you have to do is to look into your own heart, and it will tell you how you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. My neighbor is every person, especially those who need my help, as Christ explained in the tenth chapter of Luke. Even if a person has done me some wrong, or has hurt me in any way, he is still a human being with flesh and blood. As long as a person remains a human being, so long is he to be an object of our love. Paul therefore urges his Galatians, and incidentally all believers, to serve each other in love. You Galatians do not have to accept circumcision. If you are so anxious to do good works, I will tell you in one word how you can fulfill all laws. By love, serve one another. You will never lack people to whom you may do good. The world is full of people who need your help. Verse 15 But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. When faith in Christ is overthrown, peace and unity come to an end in the church. Diverse opinions and dissensions about doctrine and life spring up, and one member bites and devours the other, i.e., they condemn each other until they are consumed. To this the scriptures and the experience of all times bear witness. The many sects at present have come into being because one sect condemns the other. When the unity of the spirit has been lost, there can be no agreement in doctrine or life. New errors must appear without measure and without end. For the avoidance of discord, Paul lays down the principle, Let every person do his duty in the station of life into which God has called him. No person is to vaunt himself above others, or find fault with the efforts of others while lauding his own. Let everybody serve in love. It is not an easy matter to teach faith without works, and still to require works. Unless the ministers of Christ are wise in handling the mysteries of God, and rightly divide the word, faith and good works may easily be confused. Both the doctrine of faith and the doctrine of good works must be diligently taught, and yet in such a way that both the doctrines stay within their God-given sphere. If we only teach works, as our opponents do, we shall lose the faith. If we only teach faith, people will come to think that good works are superfluous. 
Verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I have not forgotten what I told you about faith in the first part of my letter. Because I exhort you to mutual love, you are not to think that I have gone back on my teaching of justification by faith alone. I am still of the same opinion. To remove every possibility for misunderstanding, I have added this explanatory note. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. With this verse, Paul explains how he wants this sentence to be understood. By love, serve one another. When I bid you to love one another, this is what I mean and require. Walk in the Spirit. I know very well you will not fulfill the law, because you are sinners as long as you live. Nevertheless, you should endeavor to walk in the Spirit, i.e., fight against the flesh and follow the leads of the Holy Ghost. It is quite apparent that Paul had not forgotten the doctrine of justification, for in bidding the Galatians to walk in the Spirit, he at the same time denies that good works can justify. When I speak of the fulfilling of the law, I do not mean to say that you are justified by the law. All I mean to say is that you should take the Spirit for your guide and resist the flesh. That is the most you shall ever be able to do. Obey the Spirit and fight against the flesh. Verse 16. And ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is not altogether extinct in us. It rises up again and again and wrestles with the spirit. No flesh, not even that of the true believer, is so completely under the influence of the spirit that it will not bite or devour, or at least neglect, the commandment of love. At the slightest provocation it flares up, demands to be revenged, and hates a neighbor like an enemy, or at least does not love him as much as he ought to be loved. Therefore, the Apostle establishes this rule of love for the believers. Serve one another in love. Bear the infirmities of your brother. Forgive one another. Without such bearing and forbearing, giving and forgiving, there can be no unity, because to give and to take offense are unavoidably human. Whenever you are angry with your brother for any cause, Repress your violent emotions through the Spirit. Bear with his weakness and love him. He does not cease to be your neighbor or brother because he offended you. On the contrary, he, now more than ever before, requires your loving attention. The scholastics take the lust of the flesh to mean carnal lust. True, believers too are tempted with carnal lust. Even the married are not immune to carnal lusts. Men set little value upon that which they have, and covet what they have not, as the poet says, quote, The things most forbidden we always desire, and things most denied we seek to acquire. Quote. I do not deny that the lust of the flesh includes carnal lust, but it takes in more. It takes in all the corrupt desires with which the believers are more or less infected, as pride, hatred, covetousness, impatience. Later on, Paul enumerates among the works of the flesh even idolatry and heresy. The apostle's meaning is clear. I want you to love one another, but you do not do it. In fact, you cannot do it because of your flesh. Hence we cannot be justified by deeds of love. Do not for a moment think that I am reversing myself on my stand concerning faith. 
faith and hope must continue. By faith we are justified, by hope we endure to the end. In addition, we serve each other in love, because true faith is not idle. Our love, however, is faulty. In bidding you to walk in the Spirit, I indicate to you that our love is not sufficient to justify us. Neither do I demand that you should get rid of the flesh, but that you should control and subdue it. Verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. When Paul declares that, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, he means to say that we are not to think, speak, or do the things to which the flesh incites us. I know, he says, that the flesh courts sin. The thing for you to do is to resist the flesh by the spirit. But if you abandon the leadership of the spirit for that of the flesh, you are going to fulfill the lust of the flesh and die in your sins. Verse 17. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. These two leaders, the flesh and the spirit, are bitter opponents. Of this opposition, the apostle writes in the seventh chapter of the epistle to the Romans, quote, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The scholastics are at a loss to understand this confession of Paul, and feel obliged to save his honor. That the chosen vessel of Christ should have had the law of sin in his members seems to them incredible and absurd. They circumvent the plain-spoken statement of the apostle by saying that he was speaking for the wicked. But the wicked never complain of inner conflicts, or of the captivity of sin. Sin has its unrestricted way with them. This is Paul's very own complaint, and the identical complaint of all believers. Paul never denied that he felt the lust of the flesh. It is likely that at times he felt even the stirrings of carnal lust, but there is no doubt that he quickly suppressed them. And if at any time he felt angry or impatient, he resisted these feelings by the Spirit. We are not going to stand by idly and see such a comforting statement as this explained away. The scholastics, monks, and others of their ilk fought only against carnal lust, and were proud of a victory which they never obtained. In the meanwhile, they harbored within their breasts pride, hatred, disdain, self-trust, contempt of the word of God, disloyalty, blasphemy, and other lusts of the flesh. Against these sins they never fought, because they never took them for sins. Christ alone can supply us with perfect righteousness. Therefore we must always believe and always hope in Christ. Whosoever believeth shall not be ashamed. Romans 9.33 Do not despair if you feel the flesh battling against the spirit, or if you cannot make it behave. For you to follow the guidance of the spirit in all things without interference on the part of the flesh is impossible. You are doing all you can if you resist the flesh and do not fulfill its demands. When I was a monk, I thought I was lost forever whenever I felt an evil emotion, carnal lust, wrath, hatred, or envy. I tried to quiet my conscience in many ways, but it did not work, because lust would always come back and give me no rest. 
I told myself, you have permitted this and that sin, envy, impatience, and the like. Your joining this holy order has been in vain, and all your good works are good for nothing. If at that time I had understood this passage, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, I could have spared myself many a day of self-torment. I would have said to myself, Martin, you will never be without sin, for you have flesh. Despair not, but resist the flesh. I remember how Dr. Staupitz used to say to me, I have promised God a thousand times that I would become a better man, but I never kept my promise. From now on, I am not going to make any more vows. Experience has taught me that I cannot keep them. Unless God is merciful to me for Christ's sake, and grants unto me a blessed departure, I shall not be able to stand before him. His was a God-pleasing despair. No true believer trusts in his own righteousness, but says with David, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Psalm 143, verse 2. Again, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Psalm 130, verse 3. No man is to despair of salvation just because he is aware of the lust of the flesh. Let him be aware of it so long as he does not yield to it. The passion of lust, wrath, and other vices may shake him, but they are not to get him down. Sin may assail him, but he is not to welcome it. Yes, the better Christian a man is, the more he will experience the heat of the conflict. This explains the many expressions of regret in the Psalms and in the entire Bible. Everybody is to determine his peculiar weakness and guard against it. Watch and wrestle in spirit against your weakness. Even if you cannot completely overcome it, at least you ought to fight against it. According to this description, a saint is not one who is made of wood and never feels any lusts or desires of the flesh. A true saint confesses his righteousness and prays that his sins may be forgiven. The whole church prays for the forgiveness of sins and confesses that it believes in the forgiveness of sins. If our antagonists would read the scriptures, they would soon discover that they cannot judge rightly of anything, either of sin or of holiness. End of chapter 5, verses 13 through 17 of Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians.